I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 15th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that to show love to your spouse, wake up every morning thinking of what you can do to make your spouse glad that they are married to you, and then do it. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Seventh of March this morning, years flying by already in March. Our lesson for this morning is the fifteenth part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text this morning is in the twenty-eighth chapter of the book of Genesis, and is verse one and two. And the Bible says this: Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, "You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan." Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads on a, in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And for those that are listening that are also on Facebook, I've opened up my Facebook page so that you can send me any question that you may have about my sermon via chat. Now, there's a seven-minute delay in the Internet broadcast, so we will not be able to converse interactively. But I will try to answer your questions as best I can, given the technical limitations. This is my first time trying this, so we'll be working out the bugs together. And also, if you want to follow the PowerPoint presentation while you're listening, it's the first blog entry on my website. Now, before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, Isaac was preparing for his demise. His oldest son Esau was that which the Bible calls a profane man. Esau showed that he did not value the blessings that God provided for him by trading half of his inheritance to his younger brother in return for a bowl of stew. And then, against his parents' wishes, polygamously marrying two Hittite women who were not worshipers of God. 
Now, these flaws notwithstanding, Isaac preferred Esau as a companion over his younger son, Jacob, because of Esau's ability to hunt and prepare wild game. And since Jacob acquired the birthright because of a portrait by Esau, Isaac decided to give Esau a special blessing. But Esau's younger twin brother, Jacob, was Isaac's wife's Rebekah's favorite. And Rebekah successfully conspired to fool Isaac into blessing Jacob with the blessing intended for Esau. And as I mentioned last week, the blessing was Isaac's to give. And since Rebekah chose to deceive Isaac and thwart his intention, she lost access to her favorite son. The unintended consequence of Rebekah's conspiracy against Esau was that Esau, being a profane man, threatened to kill Jacob. God would have preferred a peaceful solution, as the book of Hebrews admonishes us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 through 17, which says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So peace with Esau was not forthcoming. Rebekah prevailed upon Isaac to send Jacob away to save his life under the pretext of finding a wife that worshiped God. Our text, Genesis 28, 1 and 2 records, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Jacob left the camp under a death threat, leaving his parents, his brother, and his inheritance behind. Jacob followed his parents' instructions and traveled to Rebekah's hometown of Haran. On the first night of the journey, God met Jacob as Jacob slept. Genesis 28, 12 through 15 record, Then Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of gods were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you, and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And upon awakening, Jacob responded to the dream in Genesis 28, 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, I am going. 
Then give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I will come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob made the deal with God to receive God's protection and guidance. God started on the job immediately. God gave Jacob traveling mercy and facilitated his travel to his desired destination. And upon arrival, Jacob met a group of fellows at a well who verified that they were in the territory in which Jacob's uncle Laban, whom Jacob had never met, was living and doing well. Now, as Jacob and the boys were discussing the situation, a beautiful girl entered their view and headed for the well. When Jacob saw her, he did a double take and his jaw fell open. The fellows noticed that one of them said, you were asking about Laban? Well, that's his daughter, Rachel. Now, Rachel was leading a flock of sheep to the well. The obvious fact was that she was bringing the flock to drink, was not lost on Jacob. Genesis 29, 10 through 12 records, And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his brother's mother. His mother's brother, rather. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice, and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he were, he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, once Laban found out that Jacob was in town, he immediately went out to meet this nephew that he had never seen before. And after Laban heard Jacob's story, he offered Jacob hospitality. Why would he not? After all, the first thing that Jacob did when he saw a member of the family was to help them. And living in an agrarian society, labor was always needed, and Jacob certainly seemed eager to help. Now, one of the things that potential fathers-in-law need to find out about their potential sons-in-law is their ability to take care of their daughter. The act of marriage implies that a man has to be able to take care of his wife. As 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, when Abraham servant 40 plus years earlier to find a wife for Isaac, the servant brought riches, a caravan of camels loaded down with provisions, and golden presents. Jacob showed up at Laban's house with nothing except a strong back and his ability to work. But after having been at Laban's house for a month, Jacob's work ethic so impressed Laban that Laban decided to hire Jacob to take care of his farm and his flocks. Genesis 29, 15 through 18 records, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so Jacob said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your youngest daughter. Now the word translated delicate in the New King James is from a Hebrew word that has several English synonyms. And the general consensus of interpretive opinion is that Leah was cross-eyed, which seems to fit the context as a reason that Leah's eyes were unattractive to Jacob. Now Jacob is over 40 years of age and has been the favorite of a beautiful mother for those 40 years. Esau sought out and found wives, but Jacob had no need for a wife. Jacob was closer to his mom than his mom Rebecca than was his dad Isaac, and Jacob stayed close to home and cultivated their relationship. Now, I've mentioned several times during this series of lessons that women are bonded hormonally by the hormone oxytocin. Women bond chemically with men with whom they have sex and children that suckle at their breasts. Negative circumstances can sometimes override the chemical bond, but lacking negative circumstances, women often show an extraordinary allegiance to the husbands and children with whom they have these experiences. Mothers that have an extreme affinity for their sons and daughters are, in many cases, reluctant to allow them to grow up. Mothers often find it necessary to meddle in the lives of their grown children and hang on to their grown children as though the relationship with their children is their primary relationship. And Jacob was Rebecca's primary relationship in that house. Rebecca valued Jacob's interests over Isaac's word. Isaac could not separate Jacob and Rebekah. The thing that separated them was a viable death threat from Esau. After all, Esau killed things for a living. Now conditions have thrust Jacob into the world, away from his primary relationship with his mom. And Jacob had a primary need to replace the comfort that he received from Rebekah with that of another woman. So Jacob did not make a deal with Laban for currency, land, or for cattle to increase his fortune. Jacob was attracted to Rachel and wanted to be with her. As the eighth portion of Genesis 2.18 records, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And most boys can't find a better helper than mom. But men need a different kind of help. As Genesis 2.24 records, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Laban, recognizing Jacob's value to the family and farm and not having a better option for a husband for Rachel, chose to keep the inheritance in the family and allow cousin Jacob to marry Rachel. However, in his agreement, Laban was cautious. He agreed to give Rachel to Jacob, but only after Jacob actually served the seven years of labor. Now, that was not exactly what Jacob had in mind, but Jacob agreed to the deal after he realized that he would be on site and able to oversee the proceeds of his investment. Laban could hardly give Rachel to another man with Jacob right there. And although Jacob and Rachel couldn't consummate their relationship, 
Jacob was satisfied to be able to talk to Rachel and look at her every day. So Jacob and Rachel had one of the longest engagements between two people with an actual wedding in mind, but Jacob consented himself with anticipation. Genesis 29 and 20 records, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he heard had for her. Finally, Jacob's big day came. Genesis 29, 21 records, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Now, Jacob worked for seven years and did not receive a paycheck. He did receive room and board and the ability to talk to a girl that he loved every day. But Jacob had received no tangible resources in return for his excellent work. But Jacob didn't particularly see the lack of possessions and land as a problem because he still had his inheritance at home. But Jacob wanted Rachel. Laban, on the other hand, looked at the situation differently. Laban knew that Jacob had an inheritance in another land, and Laban had already given up his sister to never be seen again. And Laban knew that once Jacob received Rachel, there was no telling how soon Jacob would be leaving for home. Laban also knew that Jacob's nose was open. Anyone who would work honorably for seven years with no pay just to get the love of a woman is someone that you can't just give up easily. So Laban did not. Genesis 29, 23 records, Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Now understand, Laban waited until sundown to give Jacob his bride. It's dark. It's their first time. Leah claimed she was bashful and wanted the lights turned off. Wait a minute. What lights? This is in Genesis, before the days of electricity. Now, Leah and Rachel are sisters. They are similar in form, and in the dark, a man probably can't tell one from the other. At least Jacob couldn't. And after seven years of waiting to consummate his marriage to Rachel, he was probably so excited about being with his beloved that he didn't worry much about it. So Laban pulled a fast one and got over on Jacob. Jacob didn't mind too much being married to Leah in the dark, but in the daylight, Jacob took one look into those eyes and went to see Laban. Genesis 29, 25 through 27 records, so it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done thus so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you Rachel for also for the service which, with which you will serve me with another, still another seven years. Well, Laban, said Jacob, if the youngest couldn't be married before the oldest, why didn't you say so in the first place? Well, Jacob, said Laban, how could I get you to work for, four, for me for 14 years for no pay? If I told you up front that I was taking you, but I'll make you a deal. Spend the rest of this week giving Leah a good honeymoon and I'll give you Rachel next week rather than making you wait seven more years to get her. Genesis 29, 28 through 30 tells us 
Then Jacob did so and fulfilled Leah's week. So Laban gave Jacob his daughter Rachel, his wife also. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Now I was at home Friday evening getting ready to go dancing with my wife. And she came into our bedroom from shopping with a new garment to wear. When she came into the room, I was once again reminded of the reason that I married her in the first place. She's so cute that every time I look at her, I just have to smile. And one of the great joys of life is for a man to have someone cute to look at every day. I see women on television and at the dances that are made up to be drop-dead gorgeous or that display themselves as really sexy, but beautiful girls have never affected me as much as cute girls. Maybe it's my insecurity because I see really beautiful girls as unattainable and cute girls available to an average-looking guy like me. Every man has his own criteria for a woman, and as a wise man once said, there is no accounting for taste. But once a man finds a woman that suits his fancy, the real relationship can begin. Attraction is one thing, but relationship is another. Attraction is based upon physical proximity and some subjective characteristics, but love is based upon how we treat one another in the long term. And as we will see in later lessons from this example, having sex with a man doesn't make him love you. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 tells us, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous, it does not brag, and it is not proud. Love is not rude, is not selfish, and does not get upset with others. Love does not count up wrongs that have been done. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over the truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, always hopes, and always endures. Now you notice that none of the attributes of love have anything to do with sex or looks. These attributes have nothing to do with body type, physical condition, or knowledge or ability to perform sexually. Having sex with a man doesn't make him love you. Love is a complex, com complex concept that can be explained simply with respect to marriage. To show love to the one that marriage, that you have married, wake up every morning thinking of what you can do to make your husband or wife glad that they are alive and glad that they are married to you. And then do it. In a counseling journal, I read of an interesting case of a woman who obtained evidence that her husband was having an affair with a co-worker. The woman confronted her husband, who was contrite, and promised to immediately cease the affair and break off with the other woman. The couple went into marital counseling, discussed the situation thoroughly, and at the end of the counseling, the man promised to be faithful to his wife. Six months went by, and the woman began to become suspicious of her husband. It was not for any reason that she could objectively state. Her husband went to work on time every morning, came home on time every night, and never went out without his wife, a trusted friend, 
or to an event for which the wife was given the time parameters. The husband appeared to always be what he was supposed to be, and the wife could never catch her husband anywhere that he was not supposed to be. But she was still suspicious of her husband for some intuitive reason. The uncomfortable wife decided to bug her husband's SUV. She put a sound-activated tape recorder under the driver's seat before he went to work the next day. And when she listened to the tape, she heard her husband apparently having sex with someone in the SUV for about 15 minutes. She didn't say anything to her husband, but put the tape recorder back in his vehicle. The next day, she listened to the tape and heard the same activity that she had heard the previous day. Just to be sure, she put the tape recorder back in his vehicle for a third day with the same results. So the wife confronted her husband with the audio evidence. He confessed that he had only stopped having sex with his lover for a short time when he was first found out, and that she, he and she had been having sex before work for 15 minutes every workday morning for about nine years. His lover was a married woman and neither he nor she wanted to leave their marriage and children, but they both enjoyed the intimate time and pleasure that they had with one another. Needless to say, the woman was shocked and asked her husband to leave their home and file for divorce. Now, why would this man have sex for 15 minutes with a married co-worker every day? This man is not out chasing women because he's only interested in one woman outside of his marriage. Other than in this case, he is never anywhere where he's not supposed to be. Neither the man nor his co-worker was interested in leaving their marriage, as they had been having their affair for nine years without doing so. In fact, they were obviously using their affair to maintain their marriages, as neither of them revealed their dissatisfaction with their marriages to their spouses. So the first question for you is, how would their marriage have been different if the man's wife made love to him 15 minutes every morning before he went to work? The second question for you is, do you have 15 minutes to spare for your mate? Now, it's an interesting fact that life is lived on a day-to-day -day basis. Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Bible tells us in Psalm 37, 8, Ephesians 4, 26, 27, 31, and 32, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, what is the point of holding on to anger? Being angry is a form of control. People stay angry so that they can keep the upper hand. 
If I can justify being angry at you, I can maintain control and justify not being loving, not doing what the Lord tells me to do. I don't have to be patient and kind. I can justify being jealous, rude, and selfish. I can justify being upset and can keep score of the wrongs done to me. Of course, my anger also allows me to erase the score sheet of things that I have done to you. So God tells us to not sin in our anger by holding on to it. Yes, you may react impulsively to a situation that makes you angry, but whether or not you choose to hold on to your anger past sundown is a decision, not an impulse. And God says not to do it. And from now on, I'm only going to make my wife angry at two minutes before sundown so she can't hold on to it. But that's the choice that we each have to make. Are we going to love or are we going to seek to control by holding on to anger? After Jacob woke up lying in the bed next to cross-eyed Leah, when he anticipated looking into the beautiful face of his desirable Rachel, he went to see Laban. Jacob didn't want two wives and he certainly didn't want a cross-eyed wife, but Laban had the upper hand. Jacob had deflowered Leah and he couldn't fix her back like she was before the night of passion. So Jacob was stuck. However, do you remember how Jacob tricked Esau? Romans 12, 19 tells us, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath for it is written Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, don't hold on to anger because what goes around comes around on a cosmic level. And one of the reasons that God tells us to give up our wrath is that he is in control of the universe. And as long as God is in control, the trick will eventually end up being on the trickster. I remember the greatest trick that God ever played. He played his trick on the Jewish leaders that were desecrating his temple in Jerusalem by preaching his word falsely and cheating the people over which they had control. The Jews deceived those to whom they were speaking that they were actually speaking for God and that they were arbiters of God's word on the earth. So God tricked them. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and came in the form of a bond servant in the likeness of sinful man. Jesus Christ tricked them by disguising himself in that although he came through the line of kings, he came through the line of a descendant of David that lived in Galilee rather than Jerusalem. So when Jesus showed up on the religious scene, Jesus was able to trick the Jewish leaders that were desecrating God's house into not realizing that he himself was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And although Jesus Christ was tricking them, he was also living the life that fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies that they should have known. But the Jews got stuck on just one prophecy, which was that no prophet would ever come from Galilee. And the bad part, was that Isaiah 9 does prophesy a prophet from Galilee, 
But the Jews were so blinded that they couldn't recognize the truth of that passage of Scripture. Their blindness allowed them to reject the fact that Jesus could heal the sick, raise the dead, open blinded eyes and cleanse lepers. Their blindness allowed them to reject the fact that Jesus could feed 5,000 men with two fish and five loaves of bread, could walk on water and change water into wine. The multitudes believed in Jesus Christ as the Messiah because his godly works were obvious. But God blinded the eyes of the people in the religious leadership because God had a trick to play on them, which he didn't want them to see because of their arrogance and sin. So God allowed them to put Jesus Christ to death. The Jewish leaders couldn't even produce the evidence to execute Jesus Christ legally in their own kangaroo, kangaroo court. And when Jesus testified truthfully of his identity, they used the truth as an excuse to execute him. And Jesus Christ submitted to the most ignominious death that they could produce. You all know the story of his crucifixion, the pain of the scourging, the anguish of the crown of thorns the agony of the march up the Via Della Rosa, the suffering as he was nailed to the old rugged cross, and the torment of listening to his accusers revile him. And then God did his real work. God turned out the light of the sun and poured down all of his wrath against the sins that man has committed from that of the fruit of the garden to the sins of Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, Jacob, and Laban, down to the very last sin that anyone will ever commit on Jesus Christ. God's wrath for all of the times that you have been angry and treated your brother or sister disdainfully, every time that you have disobeyed God by exercising your anger to punish your brother and sister and make them small in their own eyes and in yours, every negative thing that you have ever done to belittle, disparage, or demean your brother or sister, God's wrath for all of your sin and my sin was poured down that day on Jesus Christ. And when the very last sin was paid for by this sinless man of God, Jesus Christ did not curse us, did not revile us, and did not condemn us because of the agony that he suffered but he simply acknowledged that which he did for us by saying, it is paid, the debt is paid. And once Jesus' mission for mankind was completed, Jesus committed his spirit to God, he hung his head in the locks on his shoulder, and he died. They took him down from the cross and buried him in Joseph's new tomb, and God waited three days to play his trick. And in three days, the greatest trick against the devil and against simplest that was ever played was played early on that Sunday morning. Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically and appeared to the women, to the disciples, and then to over 500 men at once to instruct them to go into all the world and preach the good news that our sins can be forgiven if we believe in and learn the lessons of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And God repays. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is proof of God's repayment. So we should forsake anger and not let the sun go down on our wrath, as Jesus himself tells us in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for the lesson that you have given us for the unfortunate results that Jacob suffered after he unfortunately tricked his brother. We thank you, Lord, that you are in heaven and that you rule the universe, that you see all and that you take care of all. And we ask you, Lord, that you would put it in our minds what your word says, that we might not avenge ourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For you have written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we thank you for the love that you have given us, Lord. And we ask you that you would help us to exercise it in our marriages, that we might be able to be a shining example to the world, that although the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.